today we will uh, begin our seventh sermon that is part of a series called In Christ. And if you are visiting, again, if you're new, if you haven't been with us recently, this series is an exposition of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. I've outlined this series with three themes. The blessings you have in Christ, your position in Christ, and what it looks like for you and your household to live life in Christ. This follows the literary structure of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 1, Paul explains our blessings in Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, he describes our position in Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he illustrates what it looks like to live life in Christ. And so thus far, we've given our attention to the blessings we have in Christ. Chapter 1 was all about the indicatives of the gospel, what we have graciously received in Christ, that which he has lavished upon us. We've also considered our position in Christ. In chapter 2, we analyzed our old position about apart from Christ, analyzed what it looked like to be separated from Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, totally depraved, suffering from moral inability, dull to the things of God, rebellious in following Satan and thus deserving of God's wrath. Furthermore, you and I were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our old position apart from Christ, outside of the gospel. Then we examined our new position in Christ. God, in his mercy, made you and me alive, raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places, not because of anything that we have done to earn this, but simply because God was gracious to us. Also, by our union with Christ, by grace through faith, we now have peace with God and with each other. We have been united and reconciled to one another and now have access to the Father. This is our new position in Christ. Last week, we started to look at our place within the universal church as Paul describes it. Through our union with Christ, we share in all the same rights and privileges of God's covenant people with all the saints and members of the household of God spanning both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So far in chapters 1 through 3, St. Paul's emphasis has been that our new position in Christ and all the wonderful blessings associated with it are the direct result of God's grace and not our works. This morning, we are going to see the Apostle Paul continue to address and talk about the nature of the universal church and our position in the church. And so our sermon text this morning is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This morning, I plan to give a simple exposition of those 13 verses and then briefly, I want to show how these verses are meaningful for you and me. 
So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read our text and then pray. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Would you bow your head with me? Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate your holy word. Give us wisdom and knowledge to rightly understand our new position in Christ and the nature of your church. I pray this by the power of the Spirit and in the name of your Son. Amen. Let's begin by considering verses 1 through 9. So, the phrase for this reason is a causative sentence connector used by the apostle here in verse 1. Because of everything Paul has just written about in chapter 2, the position of every believer in Christ, moving from death to life, moving away from alienation toward citizenship, all of this, this is the cause for what he is about to say in the following verses. Now, verse 1 is directly connected to verses 7 and 9, and verses 2 through 6 are really just one big parenthetical thought in between verses 1 and 7. So, in order to hear what Paul is saying, I want to read verse 1 and then immediately follow it with verse 7 for effect. So, here goes. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. When you take verses 1 and 7 together, you see that St. Paul is saying that everything he has talked about leading up to this point, the indicatives of the gospel, the reality of our acceptance with God, and salvation in general, all of these things are the cause for his ministry to the Ephesians 
and the Gentiles alike. In short, he is saying the existence of my ministry is predicated on the reality of the gospel. Because God, in his mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. For that reason, I, Paul, am now a minister. And then in verses 8 and 9, he explains that his ministry is specifically one of preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Paul's ministry is a specific ministry. It's not one of neo-philosophy or pop psychology in his day. His ministry is exclusive to preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And in describing his ministry, he uses the phrase, bring to light, in verse 9. And the Greek word that is translated as light is the word photizo, which is where we get the English word photo, meaning to illuminate. So if you think about the word photograph, you have photo, meaning light, and graph, meaning record. And so when a picture is taken, there is the use of light, which illuminates an object, allowing for the record of an image. And the light doesn't create the object. It simply brings clarity and allows a lens to focus on the object. And this is true of Paul's use of photizo as well. Paul didn't accomplish the gospel. He didn't work our salvation. He was simply a minister ordained to illuminate and bring clarity to that which already existed. In order that the Ephesians, and along with you and I, would capture the gospel in their hearts and minds through the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul's work as a minister of the gospel was to enlighten and imbue with saving knowledge through the preaching and instructing of God's holy word. Therefore, Paul is a prisoner for Christ Jesus and for the Ephesians because of this preaching ministry. Early on in the sermon series, I pointed out that Paul wrote this letter during an incarceration following the events of Acts chapter 22. If you recall, Paul departed Ephesus and went to Jerusalem to meet with the believers there along with the other apostles. And accompanying him was a man by the name of Trophimus, a Gentile Christian from Ephesus. And when Paul and his entourage arrived in Jerusalem, Luke gives us the firsthand account that they were welcomed by the leadership, but were warned about the thousands of Jews in the city who had become believers in Jesus Christ. And the warning was this. They warned Paul that the Jewish Christians had heard that Paul was not requiring Jewish Christians to circumcise their children. For this, these thousands of Jews were offended and upset. 
And so in chapter 22, Paul is falsely accused of bringing, bringing Trophimus into the inner courts of the temple. And then a riot ensues and Paul is taken into Roman custody. If you read the rest of the book of Acts, you will see that Paul uses his imprisonment as a platform or an opportunity to preach the gospel to Roman authorities. In fact, Paul takes his legal case to the highest court in order that he might appear in Rome and bring a light to the Gentiles there through his preaching. But this understanding of Paul's calling and ministry helps explain the parenthetical thought in verses 2 through 6. In those verses, Paul refers to the mystery of the gospel. And this mystery is plainly stated and revealed in verse 6 when the Apostle Paul states the following, quote, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The message of Paul's preaching and the very thing that offended the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem is that justification is only by grace through faith and not in the works of the ceremonial law. Paul very well could have brought Trophimus into the inner court of the temple and God would not have been offended. Because at this time in history, the temple curtain had already been torn in two. Christ was crucified and resurrected, his body broken and his blood shed. By grace through faith, Trophimus was justified and accepted by God and had direct access to the Father through the Spirit and could have marched himself right into the inner court uncircumcised. This is the heart of Paul's preaching and the offense of the gospel for the Jews. Justification and acceptance with God is by grace, not works. And for this message, Paul was a prisoner. In modern church culture, this offense is still very real. For most of us, we don't think of circumcision as the means of entrance into the new covenant. But we do require certain good works of others in order for us to consider them fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. Inadvertently, we only accept people if they homeschool or have large families or have certain books in their library or share the same eschatological position as us or practice pedo-baptism. We may not ascribe to circumcision, but we do have our own levels of justification in which we require other people outside of our tribe and our denomination to attain in order for us to embrace them as fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. 
Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that there aren't right and wrong answers or that there is no place for doctrinal distinctives or that we don't have valid reasons for why we homeschool and invest in private enterprise. And I would argue that, by and large, this church has the right answers and the correct theological positions. However, what I am saying is that there is an important distinction between acknowledging our differences with other believers and acting like the people we disagree with are not believers at all. And if we practice the latter, then we are no better than the Jewish Christians who took issue with Paul and had him arrested for preaching grace alone. There is another form of offense from Paul's teaching that exists in modern Christianity as well. Among some evangelicals, a teaching has arisen concerning the nature of the church. And that teaching is this. God has two separate plans of salvation. One for the Gentiles and a second plan for Jews. God's people are not united in one body, but separated into two. And according to this modern theology... The plan of salvation for the Gentiles is the gospel and is symbolized as the church age. The plan of salvation for the Jews is a rebuilding of the temple following the church age, in which the ceremonial law will be reinstated. Animal sacrifices will be made to atone for sin. Ceremonial cleanings will be restored. And circumcision strictly Required. However, a plain reading of the text will show that this teaching does not align with what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. According to Paul, the church is something that has always existed, and through the gospel, the Gentiles are being brought into it and made fellow heirs with the already existing church members of the already existing body, and partakers of the already existing promise. And this reality is demonstrated by three biblical facts. First, the historical use of the word church. Second, the continuity between Old Testament and New Testament saints. And third, Paul's use of the temple imagery for describing the church. So number one, you've heard me say this before, the word church is used in the Old Testament. The original Old Testament manuscripts were written in Hebrew, but around 300 BC, an important Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible was provided, and it is known as the Septuagint. And the translators of the Septuagint, working from Hebrew to Greek, commonly use the word ekklesia, which is the Greek word for church, to describe the assembly of God's covenant people in the Old Testament. And so we see the word church throughout Exodus and Deuteronomy. Furthermore, Orthodox biblical scholarship has shown that the Septuagint was popular in Judea during the time of Christ, which means this. If you asked a Jewish person 
living before or at the time of Christ, what the church was, they would have the textual and theological underpinnings to articulate that the church is the assembly of God's covenant people. This is how the word was used. And this is proven by Jesus' words in Matthew 16, when Jesus says, I will build my church. And at that point, when Jesus said that, no one needed Jesus to explain what he was talking about. No one raised their hand and said, Jesus, what do you mean by church? In fact, the way that Jesus speaks, he assumed that his audience already had a developed understanding of the word church. And at the very least, they could say, the church is God's covenant people. Second, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul states that the Old Testament prophets are the foundation of the current church's structure. With Christ being the chief cornerstone, and you and I being united to the Old Testament saints in Christ, and making up one structure, one temple, essentially one church. According to the Apostle Paul, the foundation of the church was laid in the Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets and is being built upon in the New Testament and even now. The Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are all part of the same spiritual structure a temple for God. And the temple that Paul is describing is a euphemism for the church. Just as body and bride are used to describe the church, temple is used in the same way. And in this particular context here in Ephesians chapter 2, temple is very fitting as Paul continues to draw upon architectural language. Remember in chapter 2, he inferred that the warning stones and the temple walls of hostility were broken down by Christ, further demonstrating that a physical temple, a future physical temple, is antithetical to the gospel. With all that being said, while circumcision is not a major issue in modern Christianity, there still remains an offense to the grace of God, which Paul preached. And some of that offense exists somewhere out there, and some of that offense exists in here as well. Verse 1 and verses 7 through 9 are connected. Paul's ministry exists because of the gospel indicatives. He's not a minister, again, of a new philosophy or pop psychology or a new ideology. He is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 2 and 6 are a parenthetical thought concerning the mystery of the gospel. Jew and Gentile united in the gospel to make up one man, one body, one temple, one church because salvation is not a matter of works or status, but solely the grace of God. Now, draw your attention to verses 10 through 13. 
So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Verses 10 through 11 explain why God has chosen to operate with one man instead of two, or one body, or one spiritual structure, one spiritual temple. Paul says, the existence of a united church demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, a united church, united between Jew and Gentile, reveals the glory of the Creator. Now, this idea is pretty straightforward. If you think for a moment, Solomon's temple, in all of its uh, beauty and architectural genius, displayed his wisdom and power. And modern structures do the same thing. For decades, the Empire State Building demonstrated the ingenuity, the technology, and exceptionalism of American industrialization. The Empire State Building was evidence of America's industrial might and wisdom. Likewise, the spiritual temple of God, the church which he is building, displays his wisdom and his power. And so that idea is pretty straightforward. But what may cause us to scratch our heads is the end of verse 10 in which he says, the wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Seems like an odd reference to heavenly places and God being the one exercising and showing and demonstrating his wisdom and power. But think of this. Heavenly places is the same Greek phrase that appears in a very similar passage that we all, I'm sure, are aware of. Quote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In both Greek and Hebrew literature, the heavens represented the abode or dwelling of the powerful. And a classic Hebrew example of this is seen in Psalm 115, verse 3, which says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. A Greek example can be found in the many references to Mount Olympus. One individual writing about Greek mythology has noted the following. He says this, quote, In time, Mount Olympus stopped referring to the actual mountain located in Greece and became a much more mythical concept, often signifying the unreachable, serene haven located above the physical peaks themselves where the gods 
dwelled. Here in verse 10, St. Paul is using the heavens to describe evil spiritual forces and power. And according to Paul, God is building his spiritual temple, the church, as a means of displaying his wisdom and power, not only to men, but directly to the wicked and evil spiritual beings that exist. Which means this, God is using my life and your life, which are deficient and weak, as stones in his spiritual structure to demonstrate his wisdom and power. It's not my work or your achievements that God is displaying as he builds his spiritual structure. Rather, it's his grace and mercy in our sinful and broken lives that demonstrate his wisdom and power. Our lives represent the atoning and redeeming work of Christ in which sin, Satan, and death were defeated. This is how God is displaying his wisdom and his power in building a united church through the gospel. The stones themselves are shown to be weak, but the builder is a genius. Verse 11 tells us that the spiritual temple that God is building was part of an eternal plan drawn by God before the foundation of the world. And it's why we were predestined in love to be adopted as sons and daughters. Our adoption was not the only thing that was predestined and planned, but also this spiritual structure that we would be part of. Furthermore, Paul emphasizes that this plan was realized in and through the work of Jesus Christ in whom... We, like Trophimus, have direct access to God. And finally, in verse 13, Paul returns to the subject of his imprisonment. He is suffering for the gospel. And as a direct result of him preaching grace alone to the Ephesians. And with that, Paul does not want the Ephesians to lose heart because of his suffering on their account. But rather, he wants them to appreciate it and recognize that he is suffering for the gospel, which is actually their glory. So, what does this mean for you and me? In closing, I want to consider three meaningful ways for you and I to interact with these verses this morning. So number one is this. God's grace realized in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only means of justification and acceptance with him. Therefore, you and I should not require more than this of others before we recognize them as fellow heirs, members of the same body, 
and partakers of the promise. Number two, our place and significance in the church have nothing to do with our performance. It's by God's grace that we are part of the spiritual temple. It's not our skills, not our gifts, not our education, not our parenting. None of these things have gotten us in. It's only the grace of God. Therefore, we do not need to be self-promoting, competitive with one another, jockeying for position within the church against other believers. Number three, the effectiveness of the church is not dependent upon you and me. God is building his spiritual temple in order to display his wisdom and power, not ours. Therefore, we can trust God with the outcome of our best efforts in serving him. Our job is not to build the structure, but instead to serve faithfully in our station, whatever God has determined that to be. We can trust that God will complete his structure with or without our help. This morning, I pray that you have seen your position, not only in Christ, but also in the universal church. I pray that you, by grace through faith, would lay a hold of Jesus Christ, that you would trust him and him alone and his work on your behalf as a means of entrance into the spiritual structure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.